previously on the Collection Public Art podcast. Where does public art come from? Commissioning is a completely new venture for, for the university. Our relationship with the artist in creating something new. If I was going for an operation on my heart and somebody said, oh, the heart surgeon isn't in today, but we've got this guy who knows a lot about feet, you think, well, I'll wait till the guy who knows about hearts comes back. Thank you very much. And I think that's too often that happens in commissioning public art. So where's the money coming from? Sometimes experts are needed, sometimes volunteers even. There is a ton of work done by the artists we don't see. But how do we take pictures of public art freely? Once it's made, recorded in some way, copyright. We continue in two weeks with episode four, Must Come Down. Now, episode four, Must Come Down. I'm Roxandra Bajak. So something really cool happened last month. I got to go to storage, to where we keep old musical instruments and paintings and sculptures and drawings and mosaics and just so many old and some new things, but so many old things. And if you ever have the chance to go to one of these places to get a tour of the collections not on display, you have to take it. It's just wild, honestly. These rooms are specially designed safe places for objects. They're not just rooms with shelves. Um, Depending on the materials housed, there are really strict limits on temperature and humidity. And there are, of course, absolutely no windows, so you're safe from light damage too. Often the people really connected to these places are the conservators, the ones trying to keep objects in one piece, who know what kind of conditions you need. So this storage helps our objects last. But what about the ones outside of this storage? What about things outside? This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram. Public art is usually outside. At least we can definitely say it's not in secret storage anywhere. It's exposed to the public and to the elements, to risks, to dangers, to threats, the wilds of public space. Often the materials used in public art reflect this. Artists carve in stone or use metal. They use things that last. But those materials aren't invincible. Public art still needs conservation. To give you a familiar example, if you've ever been to Edinburgh, you've probably seen or heard of Little Greyfriars Bobby. He's a Skye Terrier famous for supposedly guarding his owner's grave for 14 years, and he's remembered by an adorable statue of, of, on George IV Bridge just by the Greyfriars Kirkyard and Greyfriars Bobby's Bar. It's a little terrier statue, and it's a very popular photo stop. And in recent years, travelers have thought that rubbing his nose would bring good luck, or was just the thing to do, apparently. So, like what happens with many good luck charms, his nose went from black to shiny gold. And it took a 400-pound restoration project back in 2013 to get it back to black. Uh, But the campaign continues, begging people to leave the nose alone, because already, again, it's, you know, glowing. The greatest threat to Bobby, and a lot of the weathered public sculpture we imagine, is popularity. People are dangerous. But even less famous works, less popular, less lucky sculptures are at major risk. So remember episode two when we got really into realty and reality with public sculpture? 
I mentioned the long, arduous journey of recumbent horse, the startled boy who moved from the rooftop of the vet school on Clyde Street in 1916 to the McCallum Archway, and then from that large animal clinic to the roof of a small animal clinic at Summer Hall in 1971, and then wound up down at the Easter Bush campus, and he's still there today, but he's going to move again soon, and it's just been a generally wild ride. It's important to understand this moving is a lot of stress on him, but it's out of genuinely wanting to keep this artwork. Buildings get demolished and schools change location, so instead of letting the horse go, we take him along. But a lot has happened since he was born in 1833. He's been everywhere, and so of course, it has been a bit rough. All this time and travel and nature, and now that he's pretty low to the ground, has brought some issues along. A September 2017 condition survey and report outlined a number of things to be addressed. Reclining recumbent horse carved from standstone by Mr. Wallace of Wallace and White in 1833. Structural stability? Good. But he has some environmental soiling and surface dirt. There's some blackening from atmospheric pollution. This is called a chromatographic change. And a light covering of moss and lichen on most of him. There are chips all over, some loss, some cracks here and there, weak mortar joints. He has one pretty badly chipped ear that was then repaired, kind of. Some marks are actually thought to be old historic chisel marks, so that's kind of neat. The horse was carved in two large pieces with a third, tinier one. So now, nearly 200 years later, the mortar joints holding them together is really weakened. So what can be done for our startled boy? Conservation, of course. It's his time. But what exactly is conservation? Who's doing the job? For this, I talked to one of the conservators at the CRC, Emily Hick. Um, so my name's Emily Hick. I'm the Special Collections Conservator at the Centre for Research Collections, University of Edinburgh. Um, and my role mainly involves carrying out interventive treatment on the rare books and archives collections. Um, and I also work on the art collections and the Lothian Health Service archive collection as well. So I treat anything that's um, kind of paper-based, and that's what I trained in. And the conservation studio is behind like secure entry doors in the main library, so not many people can see what we're doing, right. even though there's so many people going going through the library. Um, and I think conservation, especially, is a discipline that's quite misunderstood. And often, when I say I'm a conservator, people think I'm involved in like environment or you know saving animals or something. But it's like no, it's kind of heritage conservation. <laughs> so you have to explain that a little bit. And not many people do know what what conservation is. So the difference restoration and conservation. Um, so conservators are just trying to stabilize the object to kind of increase its longevity. Whereas restorers are trying to, you know, take it back to how it originally looked. Um, so as a conservator, I would, um, you know, if a document had a hole in it or something um, that went over some text or an image, I would re repair that hole um, because it's obviously like an area of weakness within the document. Um, but I wouldn't try to infill any of the missing text or any of the, the colours that were potentially missing. Um, whereas a restorer would try to kind of make that, that damage invisible. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we'd probably, you know, make a sympathetic addition, but we wouldn't try to make it look how it did originally. Um, and I think that kind of comes from the fact that we don't want to kind of um, confuse the viewer in any way. Um, so, you know, by potentially restoring it so it looked how it did originally, the might 
affect the interpretation of it in the future. So we want to kind of be honest about what kind of damage has occurred, and that might tell you a little bit more about, about the object. It's not like, yeah. it's not at all trying to hide that there was damage. It's just so that it doesn't crumble. Yeah, so it just doesn't get worse through, through handling, basically. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah. that is a big difference I was missing. <laughs> yeah, I think often people think that that's what conservators do, um, but we're, we're, we're not trying to do that at all. And so you won't, if we treat an object, um, you know, for example, an old book that's got kind of brown foxing stains or kind of discoloration, it won't come back brand new and white <laughs> like it might have done originally. It'll, it'll still look like it is, is aged, um, but it will be um, stable to handle. Okay. Yeah. Which is... I mean, well, that's especially important in this one when you have yeah. people constantly dealing with books. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's why I was also curious. I know the um, the public art bit of the CRC mm-hmm. is pretty new. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think it just, I mean, Liv's position is it's brand new for yeah. the purpose of it. Exactly, yeah. Um, so are there people in... Like, are there conservators at the CRC that do outdoor, like the bronze sculpture, or is it consistently sent off to that third-party conservation? It would always be sent off, yeah. So in, in the CRC, um, we have myself, who's a special collection conservator, and I work mainly with kind of paper-based material, because that was my specialism. Um, we have a preventive conservator that kind of... Um, works to kind of maintain the environment um, so that the collections are stored in like the ideal conditions for, for that type of material um, and, you know, um, has a disaster plan so that if, if there's a flood or a fire, um, you know, um, she can um, make sure, yeah, but basically preventing any damage from that that's happening to the collections. And we also have a musical instrument conservator. Um, who deals with musical instruments? So that we, as conservators, you don't go out of your discipline. You know, you can have there's some general kind of um, things that are going to be the same across all disciplines. But I wouldn't know how to treat an oil painting or a bronze sculpture, um, and it would be unethical for me to kind of cross that boundary and try to try to do something to an object that I wasn't you know sure about mm. what what I'm working on. So yeah, one of our kind of key guidelines is that um, we need to know exactly what materials we're using um, to treat an object and what effect it's going to have on the object and um, you know what I would use to repair a paper document would be completely different for for a sculpture so yeah we would never attempt to to do (laughs) anything on an outdoor sculpture Um, there possibly something like Catherine could um, advise on certain things because you know the agents of deterioration um, you know, such as humidity and um, temperature and things, you know, she, um, conservators do have an understanding of that and how it can affect different objects. So we could maybe give some advice to prevent some damage from occurring, but we never go out there and, and, and try to do something ourselves. And we'd always advise to um, seek a specialist in that field. So that's yeah. what happened with the Easter Yes, yeah. It just, yeah. It just went straight to, um, yeah, someone else <laughs> in Edinburgh. Oh, that. Yeah. I mean, especially when it's put in terms of it would just be unethical. To, yeah, that's very serious. Yeah, because so. we need to know how you know how how our treatments are going to affect the object in in the long run, and also another kind of key guideline for conserv- conservators is the kind of aspect of reversibility. So we want to make sure that anything that we do carry out can be reversed in the future. Um, 
just in case there's any kind of better treatments that come along. Um, so yeah, something like that wouldn't really, we wouldn't know how to do that as a paper conservator, basically. Is yeah. there a sort of like hierarchy of priority for items? Like are mm-hmm. there a lot of items that just do not get conserved? Um, yeah, yeah, because obviously we've got a huge, huge collection. <laughs> and there's only myself who's carrying out kind of interventive treatment um, on the paper-based materials. Um, so it's kind of, um, we have a hierarchy based on um, what's requested in the reading room. So um, so if a reader requests something and we find that it's damaged, um, we the, the, the staff in the reading room will fill out a form and then that's passed to the curator of that collection, um, and they will rate that object um, either one, two, or three. So one is high priority, down to three is low priority for treatment. And it might get a high priority rating um, if it's frequently used in, say, a seminar for students, or if it's requested a lot, then we'll try to get it um, conserved as quickly as possible. But then there might be some objects that's only ever seen once every five years, <laughs> which will have a lower priority. Um, and, yeah, so that will kind of go down to the lower end of my list to be conserved. Um, also, if there's a kind of um, project coming up, obviously that um, will kind of push the priorities up a bit more. So if there's a collection that's going to be digitised or if there's um, an exhibition that's coming up that's going to that some of the collections need work on before they're safe to be exhibited, then that'll push them up a priority as well. Um, but yeah, we have to. It, we wouldn't just kind of start in one end of the storeroom and work the way through it because there's just there's just so much to do. So yeah. we have to have some kind of priority system in place. Yeah. 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 So I'm quite difficult sometimes to decide which ones which ones to to choose. <laughs> Have you ever had to like kind of like had an object you wanted to, but it just wasn't <laughs> a priority? Because it uh, feels heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think if um yeah I mean there's there's loads of there's loads of stuff to do that would be great to 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 work on, but it's just um this is a kind of collection of parchment charters um that really that do need. Um, some conservation work, and I personally would find that really interesting, but I don't think they're kind of requested enough to, um, you know, be high on the priority list. And also, they would take a long time to conserve, so, you know, we, we have to think about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, the university conserves as a rule, and only in specific cases gets into restoration. And with conservation, well, the CRC has a lot of books. There's a lot of paper. And we're only really looking at our public art collection very recently. Remember, we only had a public art officer from 2016. So we don't quite have a dedicated stonework specialist. Instead, we hire that type of work out to an award-winning company in the field of conservation and restoration of publicly and privately owned sculpture and statuary, museum artifacts, carved stonework, and historic building fabric. And this is where recumbent horse is going, to this third party. RH, for conservation purposes, needs a new plinth, a base, podium, pedestal, a foundation to hold him up off the ground and a bit further out of harm's way. Recall, he was made for a rooftop, where a whole building is that plinth, so he doesn't have a proper one. His new digs will be made of sandstone, a meter tall, about two and a half long, made of three separate stones, delivered straight to site. RH will be taken in different sections to the new site. Remember, he's got a new home coming soon with a new building project at Easter Bush. He'll be taken in parts and then installed with a lime mortar bed. 
But before this moving, some things still need to be done. He needs the failing mortar in the joints removed, and then later reinforced with some lime-based mortar, strengthen it up. And that old repair on the chipped ear, that'll be fixed, removed, either in carved sandstone or mortar, depending on if we want it to blend in or if we want longevity. He'll be clean to get all the gunk and moss off, and this can be done with just water and bristles or with the conservation-grade steam to really loosen up the stubborn lichen. We'll test ways to lessen the blackening on the surface. Conservation is a real serious science, so it's much more than water and bristles often. It's a lot of chemistry. So this next bit is kind of wild sounding to me, but if you're curious how to remove the chromatographic change, well, two poultices consisting of 2 to 6% weight of solution in the total volume of solution, ammonium, bicarbonate, and deionized water mixed with Arbacel BC 200 paper pulp and 2 to 10% weight over volume, ammonium carbonate, and deionized water mixed with Arbacel BC 200 paper pulp. And then you apply those poultices to a discrete area separately, about 20 millimeter thick, cover with cling film, leave in for a bit, and then rinse with deionized water and bristle brushes. If it works, do the whole thing. It's not important that you learn how to completely restore a sandstone sculpture from this podcast. That's not what I'm trying to get across. What's important to get is that there is a big project ahead. It's certainly more than Bobby's 400-pound nose job. There's a lot of money, there's a lot of surveying and testing and studying, a lot to do and make and move around. These projects take a lot to pull off. Not everything can be conserved in time or at all. Sometimes an object can spend years waiting in line for work. While sometimes it can seem easy to get money for commissioning, it can be really tough to find the money for upkeep, especially in public art, where people think once you put it out there, it's done and you can forget about it. However, conservation resources are really important to consider. Things don't last forever. Which gets us to our next topic, when things really don't last forever. When we take them down. Decommissioning. There are a lot of reasons public art might be taken down. It might be designed to be temporary, easy, simple, or there may be some natural disaster or demolition project, or it might just no longer be wanted. People have a very strong reaction to art being destroyed. We want to keep things forever, conserve and restore them. And with private art, gallery art, it's a bit easier. You can keep it in storage or in private places, pretty safe and not bothering anyone. But public art takes up a bit more space usually, and all eyes are on it. It's under much more scrutiny. Decommissioning is the process of taking something out of active service. So in art, that's usually taking it down, removing it from sight, and often putting it in some storage in pieces or completely destroying it after pretty intense uh, documenting of the piece. The key story when talking about decommissioning public art happened in New York City in 1981. Richard Serra, artist, commissioned for a piece outside of government buildings in Federal Plaza, New York. He came up with the piece Tilted Arch, which was 12 feet high, 120 feet long, leaned slightly to one side, and traced a subtle arc over its whole length, commissioned by the General Services Administration, and it took a year of interviews and drafts and reviews by both Art World-appointed civilians and government officials and just kind of everyone involved trying to plan the perfect piece, the perfect site-specific piece for this federal plaza. 
So it took two years of planning for this to be a permanent piece, but it was immediately seen as ugly, oppressive, and a graffiti catcher. People were completely upset about it. It, it crossed across the whole thing. It's not like you can go under it, you know? So it, it interrupted walks across the... Or so people found that it interrupted their walk and was going to be a real problem. So quite quickly, about 1,300 signatures came up seeking removal, but there were 10,000 people in the building. So And then at a public hearing, 180 people spoke in total including the artist, Richard Serra, who pointed out it was a site-specific work and would not function as art anywhere else. He denied an interview with social use of the plaza, and 122 people spoke in favor of keeping this artwork, including eminent figures in the art world. But 58 people, mainly people working nearby, testified against it, really seeking removal of this, of this arch, so the panel voted to relocate. Sarah sued, and this is the Sarah versus the Office of Operations of General Services Administration, and he sued on basis of breaching contract, breaking trademark and copyright laws, and violating Fifth and First Amendment rights. But courts ruled that the GSA owned the piece and could do whatever it wished with it. So the piece was removed March 15, 1989 cut into three parts, and is now stored in a warehouse. Sarah says to remove the work is to destroy it, so he's refused efforts to install it anywhere else, while the GSA has been kind of pushing for that. He says, or Sarah says, it only belongs in the Federal Plaza. And organizations have been reluctant to go against the wishes of the artist, so, so there's a chance this piece will never go up again. Now, the Sarah case happened in the States, so different copyright law, but not too different. Here, the first sale doctrine was a big factor. That's something in U.S. copyright law, saying when the author, original copyright holder, sells their material work, they lose some protections. The new owner of the work can resell it, control access to the public, and destroy it if they so wish. And there's a similar thing for U.K. works, where once a work is sold, things change, and the buyer can lend or resell the work. Of course, uh, in this case, and a case we're going to talk about in a little bit, it is very important. We don't have, or I don't have, the original contract between artist and commissioner, so that is a very important thing for actually getting into the case itself, but without the contract, without knowing exactly what's going into it, I can say first sale doctrine and these types of issues are pretty important when thinking about decommissioning. So a quick answer to a question you might have, I know I came across this, what about a commissioned work, specially ordered? I looked it up, and there is a different rule for what's called works for hire, and in them, the original copyright holder isn't the author, but it is the hirer, the commissioner. But commissioned artwork doesn't count. A work for hire is either made by an employee for an employer and is of the kind they are employed to perform, or it's a specially ordered commissioned work from independent contractors that is one of the following things. A contribution to a collective work, part of a motion picture or other audiovisual work, a translation, a supplementary work, for example, forward, afterward, illustration, map, chart, table, a compilation, an instructional text, a test, 
answer material for a test, or an atlas. And signed writing has to agree that it is, in fact, a work made for hire. So those works, the original copyright holder is the one hiring the work. But again, artwork that we're talking about doesn't fit. So that's settled. Getting back to the why and how of commissioning. So the Tilted Arch issue was that it was felt to be a nuisance. It messed with natural traffic of the square and was seen as a potential graffiti catcher. People really didn't like it. Other works become decommissioned because of more severe accusations. They become socially problematic, perhaps, with their symbolism, what they portray, the history of the work, and then we move to remove it. There are a ton of reasons we might actually want to remove art, but of course we still don't really love to do it, and removal is often met with intense protest, even if it's a removal of an extremely problematic work. It's a tricky issue. So I spoke to public art officer Liv Lamanek again to get a bit more perspective on the process. So yeah, decommissioning and disposal is a very interesting one. And I think the reason that it's so mysterious is, and maybe not talked about, is because it's kind of almost taboo in many senses. Um, Although um, within collections management, best practice involves disposal or decommissioning at some stages. It's a very rare thing, um, but it does happen. And certainly with, with public art, it happens. Um, in my experience and from public art programs or policies that I've seen, um, decommissioning is, as I mentioned, this kind of rare last resort that happens. Um, often, or I suppose, successful decommissioning and disposal procedures involves in any particular context if an artwork is highlighted as being maybe an issue for from a health and safety perspective or even maybe needs to be moved and that can be part of the decommissioning process in that it's being moved from its original place that there's a procedure followed whereby someone who notices this or wants to raise this as a, as a urgent issue goes to the person that's minding that work or who has authority over the maintenance and care of that particular work flags that issue up and from that point there is a is a the case for that work to be disposed of de- decommissioned removed etc that that's actually looked at in great detail and whether if it's an issue of health and safety, for instance, if it's if it's an issue or some kind of integral damage to the work itself that means it can't actually be fixed or repaired, that that's part of the reasoning why we then move to looking at, okay, well, this work then needs to be disposed because it's too dangerous. Similarly, if it's an, um, this, this context of decommissioning works because of the maybe a very problematic history controversies around someone who's maybe depicted etc again it needs to be looked at and considered and analyzed from all different perspectives before a decision is made to completely dispose of it and part of that can involve looking at okay well we have this very problematic work maybe we need to do something around interpretation before we remove it or is removing it the only reason that we have, the only solution that we have to to a specific problem. So 
yeah, it's it's usually case by case, and if th- this this um, yeah, if an artwork is being considered for disposal or decommission, the most successful and the most appropriate disposals have been ones that have gone through a process of looking and carefully considering do we actually dispose of this of course loving copyright i had to ask some issues there and how foundations and estates get involved with decommissioning after the artist's death does that come into play when you're talking about decommissioning disposal having to work with absolutely the copyright went absolutely 100 percent um and yes that's part of that um uh, that process of figuring out what is the best thing to do. And in some cases, um, if a work looks like it's being decommissioned, an artist will be brought in um, to say, well, okay, can we fix it? How do you feel about this? If it's being relocated, where should we relocate it? And the artist is brought in with that. If, again, as you say, the artist if the artist has passed, um, then it's usually a conversation with yeah, the estates, um, the foundations or the family that look after the work, absolutely. Um, in some cases, you have situations where if the work is decommissioned for whatever reason, it can go back into the care of of the estate. And in some cases, it's just disposed of completely. And there's an effort made around documenting the work um, for posterity and obviously documenting reasons why it was disposed of as well. So what we were mentioning there, the Palazzi mosaics, they have a whole story. One full of excitement, destruction, a daring rescue, and an ongoing art conundrum. In 1979, Eduardo Palazzi was commissioned by London Regional Transport to create a public artwork for Tottenham Court Road Tube Station. It was a mosaic covering 950 square meters picturing everyday life, visual culture references, nearby attractions, the local area, colors were matched with the train lines. There were six archways with four separate designs covering, you know, going over escalators down and back from the main entrance hall. But in 2011, Transport for London announced plans for a cross rail station and other redevelopments at Tottenham Court Road. There were restoration plans for the mosaics on the platforms, but the arches were to be removed as part of construction. And this was kind of a safety issue. They had to expand for new traffic and to make it accessible. So the Palazzi Foundation was contacted, and they agreed that they can't be retained or, you know, left undamaged. So they let go. But heritage groups and the public were very upset. Led by 20th Century Society, they protested removal and campaigned for them to be saved. This led to a petition in 2015, where 20th Century Society got a meeting with Transport for London and the architects. And this was early January, but it turns out three of four arches were already dismantled by this time. Transport for London agreed to store what was savable and find a new home. Thus walks in our hero, that new home, of course, University of Edinburgh. So, February 2015, Transport for London made contact. You might be wondering, what does the University of Edinburgh have to do with a tube station in London? Well, Eduardo Palazzi was from Leith. He actually took evening courses at the College of Art in 1941 and 42, and then enrolled full-time, but of course, conscription cut it short, 
And then later in his career, he was a visiting professor giving lectures and doing study trips. He is the most represented artist in the university art collection. His studio and archives are held in the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. And, of course, we mustn't forget the Palazzi Lager, which is made in the Edinburgh Beer Factory. So he's quite the Edinburgh figure. So we took him in, the little babes, swaddled them, kind of literally in protective material. But when we went to pick up our new gems, they were not at all really protected. They were not catalogued. They were in sacks and just kind of laid out, very messy. They're all different sizes, very rough, you know, very clearly little care given to taking them down. And again, not cataloged. We had no clue which pieces were from where. We had no clue where these pieces came from off the walls or or how much of the walls we had. We just knew we had over 600 fragments. So how much was lost? After this time, over three months, that question started to be handled. We got them all photographed, thanks to John Bryden. Then with Professor Bob Fisher and PhD student at the time, Alex Davis, we digitally mapped each fragment against original designs, matched locations, and found out exactly which bits we had. It turns out only 33% of the arches remain. So now what? Do we try and recreate the arches with what remains, or make something new of it, redisplay them differently? It's quite the conundrum here, it's a real puzzle. What people find kind of wild about this case, or at least what I do, is just how the mosaics were taken down. Completely ripped off, you know, not at all like they're an art piece. And yeah, it took some time for protests to come through and the meeting between heritage groups and architects to agree, but it just seems odd that you'd end up with only 33% salvageable at all. The rest of it kind of dust and single tiles, perhaps. Some more about this. Palazzi worked with mosaicist Chris Smith, who, while he's been able to speak on the issue and has informed people that the mosaics were designed to be removed easily, he doesn't have any legal power in this, despite his contribution to the work. Also, 95% of the total mosaic is still intact, an original place with a mix of original and new tiles. It was a really massive art piece. But of the arches, 33%. While Smith seems to not have that much power going into this, it is important that the Palazzi Foundation was contacted and signed off on it, and they were involved. As I was mentioning with Liv, after the artist passes away, it is still important that foundations and estates get involved. But then with commissioned works, ownership makes things a bit more complicated. Because, well, Palazzi himself passed away in 2005, and the foundation was set up in 1994, It seems that now any Palazzi-related exhibition works with the Charity Foundation. And if you see pictures of his work, the caption credits artist Eduardo Palazzi, then copyright trustees of the Palazzi Foundation licensed by DACS. Uh, DACS is a not-for-profit visual artist rights management organization. Luckily here with the Tottingham Court Road situation, there wasn't a huge court case like with Sarah, at least. So it was a bit easier. And things, while disappointing in the way it happened, all broken up, dusty, no care, no cataloging. There's upset, but no major legal issue. Everyone kind of signed off, everyone but the public. And so they fought it, and now the University of Edinburgh is finding ways of preserving and displaying again these mosaic fragments. Which now is really interesting because they were in exhibition in fall, actually, and are now down in storage. 
so not public art. But we'll have to see what the future holds, and perhaps they'll be public again soon. Next week, we wrap up our series asking why any of it matters, why we like public art, why we bother with it. So I want to hear from more people. If you'd like to be featured in the final episode of the Collection Public Art Podcast, or if you have any questions or corrections, you can get in touch through emailing publicartpodcast at gmail.com. The Collection Public Art Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by me, Rexandra Bajak, executive producer, University of Edinburgh Art Collection. Music by local composer, Joseph Stevenson. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk or, of course, out and around the university. My name is Roxandra, and as always, thank you for stopping by the collection. This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram.